You're listening to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast with Terrence Murphy, where we cover sales, investing, and entrepreneurship with an emphasis on real estate. Each podcast, Terrence and his guests will bring you informative and inspiring information within the real estate industry. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Going to dive into some cool stuff today. I start off with a quote, so I'll hit it real quick. Cash is trash. (laughs) You're a fool if you sit on cash. Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy. That's also a quote that comes from Robert Kiyosaki. So cash is trash, man. If you just have money sitting in the bank or under your mattress, inflation is eating it up and it is going down in value every day. We're printing money like it's going out of style in the United States and it's not backed by the gold standard anymore. It's backed by debt. So you got to do something with your cash. So my guest today is Tyler Austin. Tyler Austin is a husband, father, former Air Force serviceman, seven figure real estate investor and the founder of REI SIFT a bootstrap SaaS and prop tech, helping real estate investors scale their sales and marketing. He also holds a bachelor's degree from Florida Tech in computer information systems. Tired of traveling for the Air Force, Tyler got started in real estate when he was 24 as a way to achieve personal and professional freedom. Within two years, he built a successful investing business that broke him out of debt, freed him from his W-2, and allowed him to follow his entrepreneurial dreams. Now, Tyler spends most of his time creating software, and systems that help real estate professionals optimize and execute high ROI marketing campaigns. He's also a whiskey and cigar connoisseur, as well as an outdoorsman who will do anything to see his tribe succeed offline and online. Welcome to the show, bro. Dude, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, man. Give me your background, man, real quick in two minutes, and then tell me how and why you kind of move towards the real estate sector space and why you're on real estate entrepreneur. Yeah, man. So background. So 17, joined the Air Force, did that for I think eight years or so. I was an ammo troop. Uh, then I tried to cross train over to a crew field called SEER, fractured my back in two locations. So got out of the active duty component, switched over to the reserves, did that for about another two years under a AFC called One Bravo 4, Cyber Warfare Operator. In that time, I switched over, uh, started working for the government a little bit, did some cool stuff, dealing with planes, gas lines, power plants, things like that. So my hands were really physical on a keyboard. And through that process, my wife ended up joining the military in that journey. I left cold turkey from the military with absolutely no thought process. Ended up learning that we were pregnant. And as a man, my wife was taking care of me for like three years. It was terrible uh, yeah. in, in the terms of, uh, of kind of how I felt. So uh, slowly went in my government you know, job from a GS3 to GS12 in, in that three-year period of time. And then realized what I was searching for this whole time was my ability to make decisions. And I thought that getting to a higher rank in the civilian sector was going to allow me to be able to make decisions. And I just learned that there's always someone higher than you. Uh, So that didn't happen. When we got down to Northwest Florida here, looking into ways that I can kind of make money on the side. And I've always been doing that. Heard about wholesaling, thought it was a scam. Uh, So that's kind of where my feet started getting wet was in the wholesaling space. But I really was just trying to find deals for myself. Turned out there was someone local in my my market, Ariana Crystal Mir, that were on bigger pockets. And I was like, hey, I know that like they're in my market. It must, must be possible. Right. <laughs> so I spent ten thousand dollars in direct mail on the American Express uh Hilton Honors card that I used to travel for my job and uh, didn't get any deals. It was pretty dead. And so um I kind of stopped, reevaluate things, changed some things up looked at it more from a data perspective and kind of how I analyzed like if I was going to go on towards an engagement on an aircraft or something like that, I looked at like the same process flow 
that I that I did in Maps. Did the same thing in in the real estate company. Turned it back on, and then 250k in that first quarter. And I was like, okay, I'm out my job. Um, I left the government. I ended up having a deal where there was a lady whose uh, son had passed away like two o'clock in the morning, and she called me. I was walking between one building and another building picked it up and she like wanted me to go down there right now. So I ended up driving two hours down to Panama City. Didn't even tell my job. I was like, okay, well, I'm just gonna just gonna dip out. And it'd be an 18 people living in this 560 square foot property, yada, yada, yada. I ended up making 30K from the deal. She gave me a hug saying that she was like hoping I made millions, you know? I ended up partnering with a builder on it at the time. And uh, that hug that I got from this like 83 year old, you know, elderly woman telling me that she hopes I make a million dollars after helping her out was like, holy crap, like that's what I was actually searching for was feeling like I was doing something that, that was actually providing impact. And, and so, yeah, left the job two days later, ended up doing that. I think it was in 2018, uh, I think is when that was. Yeah. And then the rest is kind of history. Started my software company that following January and uh, January 2019, I started development, funded it, that same 30 grand actually. I went and funded back into it of that deal that she had because that was towards the end of that year. Ended up sending it to a different account, LLC I created, hired a developer and started building out kind of some proof of concept code, you know, that I was already working on personally. And that's kind of where most of my energy is now. And moving up to currently, um, we still have a real estate investment company here in, in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, where our office is at. And we primarily focus on flipping and rentals and then mobile home parks. You know, we'll still do some micro wholesaling every now and again if I but it's just really to transfer to a friend of mine if I'm not, you know, feeling like taking on a project. Mm-hmm. And uh other than that, it's this is really for REI stuff. It's really kind of why we have this building. That's why we're here. Except for the fact that above us is six Airbnbs. That's kind of like a added benefit, I guess, to the building. But yeah. No, I love it. Real quick, what if you were gonna sum up wholesaling and just a quick response Walk me through what that was. So if I was just a friend saying, hey, I'm thinking about wholesaling, how would you sum that up in a couple sentences? It is the ability to market efficiently, to create opportunity for another individual, really. So locks, get a contract, negotiate a contract, and then selling that contract to another individual. Much yep. like um, how if you were to sell a used car to a car dealership, right? They're going to go to an auction and they're going to sell that vehicle at auction. It's not quite the same because you're not allowed to participate in an auction as, you know, unless you're certified to do so. Um, but it's the same premise, right? That wholesale auction that then buys that vehicle is now going to distribute it at a discount. And and that's really the art, art of finding discounted deals. A lot of people to me trump that up or, or mess up that terminology with wholesaling in that it's a business model. And I don't believe in that. To me, wholesaling is simply an exit strategy. If, if I find a deal because I'm doing my marketing myself, I'm not only buying from the MLS, if I'm doing outbound marketing myself, if I put something under contract for a price and I decide that I am not going to want to do anything with it, having that ability to assign my rights of that contract to another individual gives me the capability still to take care of the seller um, and also fund back my marketing costs. But to me, it's an exit strategy, not like a primary business model. I love it, bro. That's a great explanation. I want to hit one more thing on that. Like you said, taking care of the seller. What are some scenarios where in wholesaling you feel like, did you catch them right before foreclosure, right before a short sale? How did you take care of the seller and then you make money at the same time where it's a win-win? Yeah. So 
for most situations for us, what we do is we, we kind of dig into multiple le- levels of what we call vexations. So um, a lot of times our properties are vacant, probate, inherited. You know, there's a lot of things going on with them. Um, mm-hmm. They're the ones that you've been driving past for years and see that it's ugly and nobody's went through the effort of reaching out to them kind of scenarios. But typically, uh, we've stopped people from going through tax auction. Tax auction is probably one of our biggest ones in the state of Florida. With tax auctions in the state of Florida, if it, if it goes to tax auction, like it's done. Like there's, and this is true in many states, but I mean, that person loses the home, they get kicked out of their home very quickly compared to the foreclosure process. And, and it's, it's pretty cut and dry. So if you can yep. come in there and say, hey, listen, I want to help you. I, I would love to have this property, obviously, but what I would rather is you not be on the streets, right? Because one of our core values as a company is community first. If we can try to make sure that at minimum, that person ends up getting money in their pocket and we can relocate them into something that they can afford through the what we bought the property for, uh, what we're really doing is we're buying properties at a discount because we're using cash. But more so than that, we're buying because of our experience and our knowledge in being able to, you know, navigate through, you know, the real estate space, be it at the county level with our attorneys that we use to to help people out, things like that. So we focus pretty heavily on probates and tax auctions. I'm pretty I'm a pretty big believer in in building a business model based off things that are always going to be tried and proven. People are always going to die and people are always not going to pay their taxes. So that's a big benefit to make sure you have longevity in your company. We still hit some pre-foreclosures. Our website picks up a bunch of, you know, divorce and pre-foreclosure cases. I just, I don't like when there's other hands in the pot, meaning attorneys to have to mix up and have to go through to get the seller taken care of. Because usually that attorney is not in favor of the seller. It's in favor of whoever, you know, hired them. So yeah, that's good, man. That's good. So you transitioned from wholesaling to, like you said, you're doing some flipping, some mobile home stuff. Why did you, why did you do it a mobile home? Cause you know, you got RV parks, you got industrial, you got commercial strip, you got single tenant net leasing, why mobile home parks? So I actually, I don't, it doesn't really bother me if it ends up being, in fact, I, I cross my fingers in, in pinky toes, uh, (laughs) the hope that I can turn it into an RV park. It just really depends. Typically, if, if we're going to be marketing from, from mobile homes, one of the biggest reasons for us around here is we're very landlocked in Northwest Florida. It's about, I think it's six bases, maybe five uh, military bases and most of the land west of Tallahassee is owned by Eglin Air Force Base and, and Duke Airfield. And so you can't really build too much more. So the benefit of, of focusing on mobile home parks is it allows us to have a high purchase commercial property that we only pay taxes on the land. And therefore, we get the cost segregation benefits of buying something that is in the price ranges that we love and a lot of value add capability. And more importantly, in my area, it means that I get to hold on to land, which is going to continue to increase in value exponentially in my market. I mean, there's a 10 acre mobile home park in the center of Fort Walton Beach. There's nowhere else that 10 acres is readily available anywhere in Fort Walton Beach. That person knows that, you know. They're sitting. (laughs) <laughs> they're sitting in this place that you wouldn't believe they can do. I mean, I ain't been in a, in a house as bad as this park. He knows it. You know, typically what we would pay 800000 for it, you know, he wants like $7 million, you know, because the lows across the street on the hottest highway, you know, it's it's really about putting ourselves in a position for, for long term more than anything. But I just really enjoy the 750 to 900 asset cl- um, class range. So... Yes, that's your sweet spot. Yeah. 
do you have like a certain return on your investment you're looking for, a certain cap rate? So with mobile home parks, we only look for and market to and try to invest in properties that at least at minimum, it has to be a 10 cap on a mobile home park for us. Yep. Like in our market, I mean, there's people buying five caps and eight caps in, in, in California, they're two cap, three cap mobile home parks. And it just absolutely blows my mind um, mm. what people are spending on them because it became like a fad. But ideally, we're looking for above a 15 cap on a mobile home park. It just kind of depends on its, its current condition and what asset class it is. If it's currently renting at you know five hundred dollars a trailer, and then we we prefer to not own the trailers, we prefer, prefer to only own the land. So depending on how much money we have to put into it to get it rocking and rolling, we want a higher cap rate, but anywhere between a ten and, and eighteen cap, realistically. No, I like that. How are you getting lending on those deals, right? Because are you getting debt on those? What kind of LTVs are you doing? What's kind of that just basic financial setup? Yeah. So as far as the data side. What's really cool about mobile home parks is that there's a lot of different ways you can get the data more organically than anywhere else. Obviously you can you can just hit multifamily, you know, from like list source and pull everything down. Um, you can find them on CoStar and other like platforms. Preferably what we like to do is is pretty simple. We literally just go with our county GIS, geospatial information system look at the aerial view and you can really easily see, you know, what a mobile home park is versus any other, you know, thing. And we just pinpoint them that way. And then we can build a list through it. We have some web scrapers that scrape county records to pull down that information. Another benefit in in most states is you can go to the Department of Health, for example, and the Department of Health in, in many states require that mobile home parks submit their information to them for their annual check-ins. And it's really nice because they got to have how many pads they have, how many active pads are, are currently being used. They got to have um, the contact for that pad, you know, or, or contact for that park there, which is sometimes the manager rather than the owner, which is, you know, you got to kind of divert around. But uh, the data is really readily available. In terms of the financial structure, it's really kind of sporadic. Typically, we're going to try to bring as much down cash initially as possible. We try to try to do combinations of owner carry with cash because and and then if we have to finance some we will mm-hmm. you know we're, really we're looking to try and make the terms fit as best we can to where we don't ha- have to leverage as much as possible and then like that. then we like to take that get it to as high as a value you know asset as we can and then we can refinance it we're okay with doing that love it love it so obviously on value add, multifamily, things like that, I see where you can increase the value, create increase the equity. How would you increase the value of a mobile home park? Is it adding amenities or? So a lot of it is, one of my partners calls it finding the money. So, so a lot of it is in things like, for example, rent is one of the, probably the biggest things. Something could be rented for, I mean, we have one up in, in Crestview. I just did a YouTube video on it and it's only a 10 pad. But it's rented for maybe five fifty a month or something like that, and they should be at nine hundred a month, right? So we're buying it based off of the price that it's operating at right now, and then we automatically switch them out and increase those rents drastically. Another big one, like for example, with that park, even though it's a small one, they're not charging the tenants for their water or their electric or any of those things, right? So a lot of the times people don't recognize. I mean. I'll take this, my office building, for example, upstairs, uh, we just have someone moved in as a longer term tenant and they're really trying to beat us up about a hundred bucks. And I was like, listen, I, I get it, you know, but what you don't understand is that if I want my building to be, if, my, if it's a 10 cap in my market, even an eight cap here, 
which they don't quite understand the caps and stuff like that. But just to give them an idealism of why it's important we keep our rents is a $100 difference in your rent at a 10 cap is $12,000 in value of my building. Wow. Right. So by driving up, you know, 100, 200, $300, $400 on 10 units, I've just increased my property value at a 10 cap at 40, 50, or $60,000 more, you know, $100,000 more by billing back that $60 of water to the tenant rather than me paying it as an operator. I've just increased it that much more, $600 in valuation or whatever. So those little things add up. So I think that's one of the big, beautiful things about mobile home parks and just parks in general or any multifamily is the ability to buy a hundred doors under one valuation and then do one change that affects all hundred doors that makes a you know fifty thousand dollar a year or twenty thousand dollar a year difference in gross profits, which makes the building value two hundred thousand more is I think is really, really powerful. So that's kind of why we've really started focusing more on that. No, that's that's good, bro. That's a great perspective. I think a lot of times we forget an extra $50 here, an extra $100 there. When you're talking about income producing assets can affect the cap rate, which ultimately affects the value of the property. So transitioning now. So obviously, why did you decide to bootstrap your startup? Tell me about that journey. Tell me about this startup. Let's let's really dive into that. Yeah, man, it's been, it's been such a fun, like it, there, there's nothing that I think of that has been like the most, you know, you, you kind of sit back sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty big whiskey and cigar connoisseur, if you will. And, you know, I'll be sitting in my backyard and I'll hear, you know, the Florida frogs, you know, chirping away. And I'll just kind of be like, what? You kind of, you kind of sit yourself back. It's kind of a weird feeling to kind of like saying words, but the bootstrapping REI stuff or just deciding to actually pull the trigger on that was the number, the, the highest risk thing I've ever done as a individual when it comes to financials. And it, ended up being the huge, the, the largest impact to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm in, you know, some, some software, you know, masterminds when SAS Academy is a really big one, Dan Martell. And uh, speaking to some of those individuals, when, when you're not at a certain level and you can put yourself around so many awesome individuals and learn from them, I learned that there's just a huge difference in the software space compared to the real estate space in, in the ability to put in $1 and get back 50 rather than, <laughs> you know, you know, and flipping, we're like, okay, I want to at least put in a dollar and get back two. you know, yeah. like we, we got to make some sort of money back. It's just a total different ballgame. So for me, REI SIF was created out of, you know, like many, uh, out of my own need to solve a problem for my own company. I had literally no plans in actually releasing it to the public. All I wanted to do was continue to automate my own company because I was getting tired and tired of my virtual assist, like my VAs having to learn how to install Python to run my scripts and all these other things. But it all started at the root data issue that when you buy data from ListSource, you get it from the county, you get it from CoStar, you get it from no matter what website it is, data doesn't come perfect. It comes missing zip codes. It comes just incomplete in general. And that's simply because data at its core at the very beginning is finger punched into a keyboard from somebody at a county level or a title company level or something like that. Mm-hmm. So when I sent that $10,000 in direct mail, the reason I didn't get anything is because all I heard out there, all I seen online was buy data from list source, send it postcard to it, and you'll start getting deals. That's all I seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came back at the time after I sent that direct mail, I went to an engagement in, um, in California for three weeks. 
And I came back and my post office box was literally packed full and they had to give me this little yellow bin full of a bunch more postcards. And I was yeah, like, what in the world? Those were- yeah, everything came back, man. I was <laughs> like, I was like, dude, like I just racked up $10,000 in credit card debt. My wife already was, yeah, like it was, <laughs> it, it was already a bad uh, situation. And then I come home with all this stuff, you know, and I told her, cause you know, she's like, well, how much, why 10,000? I mean, how much of those costs a piece or whatever? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, like 47 cents a piece or 37 cents a piece or whatever for that volume. And, you know, she sees me and all she sees is a bunch of 37 cents, you know? And so I dumped it all on my floor in my office and I spread it all. I was like, what the hell went wrong here? And I started recognizing, and I don't know why I didn't think about this beforehand, but it was like Tyler and Christina Austin on the postcard, or it was John Doe LLC, or it was, it was just, there was no rhyme or reason. It wasn't clean. So I ended up writing a script. And what it did is it, when you downloaded a list from somewhere, you ran it through the script and it broke it all apart into where it, it made clean data, incomplete data. It separated out your trust and it separated out your companies. So we then said, okay, well, we'll skip trace the companies or we'll skip trace the, uh, the clean data. And then we'll find the owners of the companies because the company is nothing but a piece of paper. I want to contact the owner. So we found all the owners of the LLCs, put clean that data up, found the trust owners that we could find, cleaned all that up, cleaned all the incomplete data, and then just merged all that back into there. And then we re-skip traced the ones we didn't have yet. Once we got all that data back, we said, okay, there's stuff with phone numbers, there's stuff without phone numbers. Cool. There's stuff with phone numbers. Let's start marketing to it. There's stuff without phone numbers. Let's send direct mail. And um, we just made that our process. And then uh, I went to a mastermind in January or February of 2019. And so I met these two individuals. Armani, Armani's out of Dallas, actually, and, and Jordan's out of um, Delaware. And uh, I seen what they're doing in their company. We kind of you know kicked it off and we came back to our separate locations and we decided to do an accountability thing where every Wednesday at like seven, I think it was, we would get on a call and see how each other were doing. I started showing them what I was doing. They're like, hey, this is, um, this is really cool. Like, I can see how this is going to save us a bunch of money and kind of make us focus on the right data and then be able to what we call milk that other, that rest of that data. So I don't have to continue buying data all the time. So they said that. I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, I've always been trying to build these websites for affiliate marketing, doing this and doing that. Why don't we just turn into an actual website? And that's when REI Sift the name came in because I was like, what, what, am we, what are we really doing here? I'm like, we're sifting it. As sift.com is taken by some data, other data company. So I was like, REI Sift. So I named it REI Sift, bought the domain, and I routed it back to my IP address that I had um, my VA going to to use the script. And initially, literally all REI Sift was was a website you could go to. It didn't have no block to pay for it or anything to just click browse, add a file from your desktop, and put it in there. And then I, I stuck my fingers in the pot and made a really terrible design for it. And and it kind of just continued to iterate. And so I took all the money that I had left from you know those first few deals and put it into that company. And first two developers uh, beyond me really were terrible. <laughs> and it continued to build it. Ended up getting um, a gentleman who, who has now been with me for two years now, two and a half years. And he's been kind of our lead and it's been going fantastic. And it, it's just kind of like what really made me realize that it was super powerful was I had done a YouTube video about list source data, like in Podio, uh, like 2018 sometime, I think. And um, so I had maybe like 
2,500 YouTube subscribers or something at the time. And I still only have maybe 5,000 or something. So I stopped focusing on it uh, stupidly. But I had done a video on there showing the flow, a process of what I just told you about. And I put a ClickFunnels page up and said, hey, if you're interested in, in being a very first user of this, you can come in at what I called the founder's discount for $47 a month. And you can do this uh, for life. And, and we plan on going up in price, this and that and the other. And we had 50 people sign up. And I was like, wow, like I just, I think it was like, what is that? 2,500 in MRR, monthly recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. And that's coming in. I was paying him roughly about the same cost a month to build the product. And I was like, this is perfect. Like I just, you know, it's working or whatever. And I had for years been trying to even make $100 a month in stupid affiliate marketing and stuff. And it wouldn't happen. And that's when I kind of had the aha moment that that product is built off of really you know, split testing and understanding what people want. And so ever since then, we continue to build our product off of those core principles. I call it CPR, customer product revenue. And so we always go back to our customers, what do you need? And then we kind of continue to develop it. And I, my, my company is literally just a test dummy now, it's really for REI Sift. But anyway, it's kind of, uh, I guess, how it started. No, that's great, bro. So where is it at today? You bootstrapped it to that point. You got the monthly recurring revenue in. Did you ever go raise any capital? Did you join any accelerators? Did you do tech stars? Any of that? Kind of walk me through what that looked like and where is it at today? I haven't accepted anything. At this point, I, I've had a lot of offers in taking in money. And, you know, it's kind of like we're a team of 12 now, I believe. You know, we just broke, uh, we, we just broke our 105K MR, I believe is roughly where we're at. And we're going on, what, a year and seven months? I guess it's almost two years now. September of 2019 is our official launch date. So whatever it is from there, two years. There you now. go. Yeah. So we're maintaining pace. We're, we're growing each and every single month, you know, 10, 15. Um, well, we've, I don't think we've ever been at 10%, 15 to 25% a month over month. And, you know, we're well above 30% net profit. So it's kind of like I've just never really seen the need to kind of bring on uh, other capital because. Mm-hmm. Of our growth, the way that we're, I'm, I'm, I'm like handling the growth of product. I could accept. I mean, shoot, I could go to Nathan Laka and I could, I could get like 500k tomorrow if I wanted it. But it's like, what am I going to do with it? You know, is kind of the biggest thing. And because even if I did have a direction, like maybe, maybe I start providing data internal product at its core. One of my biggest things that I that I educate in our community is that focus net profits. Net profits is always first and foremost, the number one highest priority is always net profits to your household. Be extremely you know, greedy when it comes to how much money you spend. It's no different than spending an extra $100 a month and losing your cap rate. Spending an extra $100 a month you know, in your product, even at a, at a micro level, uh, is $1,200 a year that you're no longer putting in your back pocket. So I'm, I'm really slow to, to buy things. I'm really slow, slower to hire. I'm just like really focus on that core, focus on that really meat and potatoes of our product, which we have really dialed in now. And now we're just focused on expansion. And our target goal is is to continue to build out product and be kind of like the pipe drive of real estate. You know, I, I look up to you know, the founders over there at Pipe Drive, Aircall, and some of those other products that that you know built some really amazing, really lightweight micro products that are just massive and solve some really awesome, unique problems. And and so yeah, I just never, just never, just never done any rounds. Never done any of that. Not maybe I won't. Not saying my next product might, you know, won't. I might. 
but I, I really enjoy the the bootstrap mentality. I think it's like I look at like uh, I don't know if you see ever seen the series. Was it called uh, the Growth of America or or how America was founded or what? It's a Netflix series. There's two different uh, series mm-hmm. on it. I think one, one's on Amazon, one's on Netflix. It talks about the Rockefellers and those individuals in the steel and in an oil era and just the way that they thought and and how they kind of piece things together to kind of build you know what we know today and. There's some nostalgia, I guess, in that when I think about being bootstrapped. I know that they used other money and everything and, and stuff, but it's just like, it's like a little club, I guess, in a SaaS community when you're bootstrapped. No, I love it, bro. So obviously, like you said, Recif is something you bootstrap and it's a prop tech because you've been here, like everybody's talking about fintech, prop tech. You know, it's kind of like you said, it's become like a fad almost. No different than accelerators and startups and stuff. But at the core of it all, you're helping investors scale their business, right? And so who is your, like your client? Like, who are you, are you marketing to clients now? Or are you just growing organically? Like, how are you getting in front of, first off, who is your client? Cause I want to talk about that. And then secondly, how are you getting in front of more clients? It's interesting because most of our growth and the first period of time up until like really July of last year, July of 2020 is when we actually started growing up until that point, it was a lot of just extreme customer support, a lot of product gaps, a lot of learning. But what I realized through where my customers were coming from initially, which was my YouTube channel, is that our, our, our people that were coming in the product were coming in because of them trying to get started, right? And naturally, that creates a really, really micro SMB customer. And micro SMB meaning like a solo entrepreneur working out of their house, kind of like small business. And so... I decided that we needed a way to kind of capture and fix the unknowns, right? That it is. I call it, I call it solving the cancer, right? In in companies because they're they're going around, they're finding information from everywhere else on how not to do things. In my opinion, so how can we fix that? So what we did is we created a challenge. We call it the Auto Lead Gen Challenge, and that challenge is essentially like a real estate boot camp, if you will. It says it's 14 days, but it's really 30 days, and so it's that really big kick in the butt where we start off in the first week. And we first figure out how much money you have. What are you spending money on? Why are you even in this business? We really get rid of the actual reasons why people aren't successful. Because what we found is 90 days would come by, people would churn out and they just said, I'm not doing real estate no more. I'm not getting any deals, this, that, and the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so I realized that the number one problem wasn't our product, right? It was the failure rate of our customers in real estate as a whole. They never got to the point where they needed to continue to use us because they didn't really have the the work ethic really to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started the challenge the first week, really focused on that, you know, kind of rah-rah-y, kind of kicking kick the butt kind of m- mantra. And then we focused on like, okay, how do we get data? How do we get that marketing sent out? How do we recycle data? How do we do all these different things to show how they can get a big impact from ultimately turning more prospects to leads and more leads to revenue, building a really healthy lead pipeline rather than just marketing and you know getting 10,000 new records every single month and skip tracing those for $2,500 a month, hiring a cold caller for $1,600 a month. These people don't even know a lick about business and they're starting and spending off $5,000 a month. To, and by the time they get a deal, they've already spent 20 grand. They get 12 grand from the deal and they're still in the negative and they never can catch up mm-hmm. simply because they don't put in the right amount of effort in the front load. So we solved that is really what we did through the Auto Legion Challenge. And when we did that, we kind of just networked with some of the Facebook groups, right? became closer to them and they started talking about it. And after we did 250 in a month, another 250 a month, 300 a month, like these people started becoming 
know, we talk about NPS surveys, right? The green smiley, the red smile, you know, frown or the yellow frown or, or neutral face or whatever. We just created a bunch of green smileys. Like we gave an experience beyond what they've ever experienced in real estate, which makes a bunch of people going and talking about that challenge. And that became our front of funnel. And that's what we've been running with really uh, since then is, is, is continuing to improve and enhance. We now do it live at the start of every month and where I'm standing now. And we talk about our user successes. We do case studies. And that's primarily how we bring in new customers now. We did Facebook ads for a little while. Um, but what I realized is that um, you know I was spending maybe like five grand a month or something like that on Facebook ads, and I would I was getting in customers for the first few months. It was break even, was, which was great, fantastic. A lot of companies would really love that. And then it got to a point where it was like a two hundred and fifty dollar CAC, and which for those that don't know, is customer acquisitions cost. That is still not bad, especially when they're you know paying ninety nine dollars for the challenge. You know that knocks that down, and then. Three months of product, a three month payback or a 90 day payback is not bad. But what I realized is that I didn't need it right now. Like I, I could, I could scale through, continue to scale drastically through more word of mouth and, and doing content. So instead, we rediverted all that money to in the last couple, well, last month, we decided to redivert all that into a vid- videographer full time, which is he's standing right here, Mason. Um, and, and just producing more really high value content. And that's yeah. really the right direction we're going. Trevor over at Carrot talks about evergreen marketing in the real estate space, on, especially on your websites. And, and that's been really beneficial to my real estate company. So I was like, I'm just going to focus on evergreen marketing inside my, my company because every other company out there, they're winning the game right now in prop tech because they're becoming the loudest voice, mm-hmm. right? And that's cool. And they can continue to grow. And they, hey, I hope they have an amazing exit. I don't have any problems with that. But I'm not really looking you know, for that. I'm looking to make a long-term impact. One of our values is to reinvent and change the way real estate professionals perceive their marketing. And to do that, it's not like a one-year thing. You know, It's not just smashing out as much ads as we can. It's embedding ourselves in, in, you know, into the marketplace and, and creating a lot of really successful people. And then from there, we'll start putting some ads against their success. Yeah. Have you ever thought about getting past investors and maybe doing the same for brokerage and the other, you know, property management and obviously the other different funnels in real estate? Yeah. So it's funny you say that. So right now we're called REI, Real Estate Investor, SIFT. Mm -hmm. But the one of our lateral moves when we realized that there's a lot, a lot, a lot of investors, and I don't know if this is video or not typically, but I'm doing quotations, yep. uh, investors, and they're coming to this marketplace and they're investing in Dogecoin and crypto and they're doing Amazon FBA and they're doing wholesaling and, and they're not really entrepreneurs, right? They're not like someone who decided, you know what, I'm going to be a real estate agent. That's going to be my career. I love properties. Yeah. I'm going to do that for life. It's not those individuals. And it's not bad. I love seeing those individuals end up making 60, 90 or $100,000 in a month and then being like, holy crap. And that changing their life, like I, that's freaking awesome. I, I applaud it. But the problem is that month it could happen. Two months later, they can be gone, mm-hmm. right? And so what we're working on is building out the product to where really wholesaling space and direct to seller marketing marketers, which is definitely agents. But what we did learn also is agents really don't like to spend money. They like sphere of they, influence, right? They don't. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, very cheap. And compared to an investor space, it's typically known that you have to spend money to create a KPI to get money back. And it's really just an acquisitions company. Yep. 
So the quick answer is yes, 100%. Our, our objective at, at REI SIFT is to is the service brokerages and, and essentially be able to have a brokerage that brings on our product to store a bunch of data and then charges their customer, their, their agents to have access to that or even as an added benefit, much like how EXP did with a lot of you know softwares where you like they you come in with EXP, you get access to all these free KV core and all that kind of stuff, right? And that's a huge desire for sure um, to do that because I mean the ability to scale when dealing with that is just you know you start dealing then with enterprise packages and and stuff like that, and it, it would just kind of take away a little bit of our direction right now. But like mm-hmm. we just launched direct mail, for example, ballpoint marketing, and we have more postcards coming, and really we want to. You know, build out more of those agent postcards and in, in our um, what we call our CRM. We call it SIF Line, is what it's called, and it's basically a Kanban style, you know, CRM, which I think is really beneficial and just just teaching agents how to find more deals. So how we're tackling that to start speaking on how we're going to bring in more clients is we're actually starting a, a meetup next month in my office to start bringing in local agents and teaching them, you know, how to do the, you know better at their marketing they've come kind of come into the new ages you know no i love it bro man i want to talk to you offline about some ideas i got 100 percent, love to yeah it's a no-brainer bro wow my mind's going 100 miles an hour already <laughs> so so what do you see as the biggest opportunity next 12 to 24 months is it in like because when you look at like what would you say are the top five sectors in technology now is it fintech prop tech like what would be your top five in technology, and then where do you see the, the the biggest opportunity in the next twelve to twenty four months? I think for me, I think that fintech is going to is obviously a huge thing right now. You know, with with kind of the way that our economy is right now, fintech is beautiful. But I don't really like fintech in like the crypto space, uh, mm-hmm. for example, because I think that I think that's too saturated. I think there's too much cutthroat stuff happening. I think there's way too many fingers in the pot. I do, however, like fintech in the regular banking space. I think it's super powerful. Yep. The ability to create a virtual bank is something that's really of interest of mine in general. In the prop tech space, I think is the next you know really big thing outside of fintech right now. I, I definitely think fintech is a little bit higher than prop tech. I, I also think, I don't know what space it technically is in, fintech, prop tech or whatever, but really just virtual communication applications is, is really huge. You know, it, it's kind of it's kind of really interesting because after COVID happened and and everybody kind of went to their homes and everything, you know, a meeting of minds of other software founders came together and was really trying to think of more ideas and how we can you know create something to service you know people in their household. I think that's a huge space. I think it's going to continue to be a huge space. But I'm a huge fan of prop tech simply because what I said in the beginning. The reason I like probates and tax delinquencies is because something that we will always have and always need. I think there's a lot of potential in prop tech AI when it comes to like new construction and efficiency. I think efficiency is going to be one of the biggest things like long term that we have being able to figure out more ways to efficiently build bigger buildings. Because as we continue to eat up more and more land, even though we've not used nearly as much land as humanly possible, it's just by the time we would go start building you know, big cities in Montana is probably not going to happen anytime soon. But what is going to happen is more, more houses are going to get torn down, more buildings are going to get torn down, and we're going to continue to building higher in you know, cities and metro markets and more subsidiary markets are going to become metro markets. And um, with that, there's a lot of efficiencies that can happen, uh, I think, in like the civil engineering realm in prop tech. Um, so that's kind of my thought process there. But what I'm really interested in for me personally is SaaS products that are servicing the prop tech 
community. In addition to that, for example, I came across a product that I, I didn't even know existed uh, yesterday because um, we're looking at starting a cleaning company locally here. And it was a, a SaaS product that links with Airbnb to where cleaning companies can bid on jobs. And I was like, my mind exploded. <laughs> Something so simple. They have like 50,000 cleaners over 20,000 jobs done or something like that. I mean, it, it's like, it's ingenious idea, right? There's mm-hmm. so much ability and possibility there. And in my market, I'm like, I mean, that's a no brainer to sign up there when you're starting your cleaning company because it's automatically a ton of customers. It's just beautiful. So I think it's things like that. I really love companies that are in the background that people really don't typically see. Data companies are another huge thing. When you can lock up $100,000 a year, $125,000 a year, data contracts with companies. I mean, you can be a seven-figure company with 10 customers. I would much yeah. rather my 1500 because of the securities behind it. But, you know, it's pretty cool to think they have only one customer and even have, you know, seven-figure MR or AR. Man, I love it, bro. We always tell our guests to bring in a book that they recommend. I think you put one or two on Profit First, Predictable Revenue. Tell me about that, man, real quick. Yeah. So it's funny because um, I always tell our users, like, I started doing big product changes after running into profit first and predictable revenue. Their one predictable revenue is one of the most genius salesmen, you know, in the world. He took Salesforce to, you know, 100 million AAR um, is is mind boggling. And I I just believe in the principles. I think that, I think those two books combined make to where the mindset of an entrepreneur is where it needs to be. It keeps the focus on continuing to build active income, continuing to increase your, as much revenue as you can. Um, through sales, but then also making sure you're focused on keeping and retaining as much profits as possible um, in your company, because ultimately profits is king, right? The more profits that you can that you can deliver is what makes you more valuable. And most importantly, as long as you have processes driven around how you've achieved that result, right, and it's documented and it's repeatable, and the CEO can step away from it, you now have something you can sell. And for me, and it's pretty morbid, I, I admit. I always think if I'm leaving my office and I go to drive through the intersection next to Dodge's chicken here in the corner, if I get sideswiped and I'm laying there bleeding to death, like what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think with profit first and, and predictable revenue and the mindset of process driven, sellable companies, if you can't sell it, it's not a company in my opinion, then I know that as I'm laying there taking my last breath, as long as I have all the entity structure and trusts and everything else structured properly, my family is going to still be okay. Mm-hmm. And before it was different. I was looking at spending everything into my company. I was literally I, the stupidest thing. I was literally spending everything by the end of the year so that I didn't have profit, so I didn't have to pay taxes. <laughs> the stupidest thing. And I went from reading that to reading profit first and then having a six-figure tax bill. I was like, and I'm like, cool, I'm okay with it. Why? Because I took profits all year, right? I preserved my tax money and I paid, I paid the taxes. And yeah. now I reinvest that into, you know, commercial deals. And, and sooner or later, after those investments, that tax bill will go away and um, it'll continue to go lateral. So that's my big one. And the process of those two books, and then it's the seven uh, strategies of wealth and happiness. Seven mm. strategies of wealth and happiness by Jim Rohn is like the pillar stone of my like life belief system. Uh, so it's really those three books that I kind of just are like my beacons. Love it, bro. Oh, man. We're going to close with final thoughts, man. So we want to leave our listeners with some final thoughts. And then I'm for sure going to reach out to you, bro. When we get down to Destin, man, we'd love to go to lunch or breakfast. And um, I think we can do some stuff together for sure. 
so my final thoughts would be that um, I believe in four four pillars: increasing, uh, improve health, increase wealth, freedom, and focus. Uh, focus being the number one component to make the other three successful. So just increase your focus, eliminate any noise, and and uh, uh, you can continue to build anything. And four years ago, my like I get what do you call it, tax bill or whatever my taxes was twenty seven thousand dollars a year. You know, and to go from that to kind of where we're at now. I attest to everything, number one, to obviously my support from my wife taking the fort while I, you know, built everything that I have up to this point. Um, but recognizing that it's endless, right? I stand next to a guy. I'm like, oh, I'm really having issues, you know, growing, you know, and getting like a hundred more customers. And he's like, well, you know, I just added 500,000 in monthly recurring revenue, you know, this month. And I'm really having issues getting customers. And it's like, it doesn't matter what scale you're at. The problems are the same at scale. It happens yeah. month over month, year over year. All you have to do is continue to get addicted to solving that problem. And you're going to continue to scale. And then just recognize that everybody grows at different paces. You know, Some of the guys that started their SaaS companies in PropTech at the same time I did are way, way, way larger than me. right? But it's okay. Get your financial household in order, meaning your personal house. Get your house in order when it comes to the things that you need to survive. You know, Make sure you have things, the cash in terms of just a little bit to make sure that you have a month's worth in case power goes out in Dallas and you don't have anything to buy food. Um, make sure you have passive income and, and continue to just work the dream. Don't rush yourself because everybody's at a different pace. I really started like emotionally getting super down uh, when I seen everybody surpassing kind of some of the things that we were doing. But because we're slow and moving and building at profit and they now have taken a hit and we're still growing drastically. So. Man, love that, bro. That's great wisdom. A lot of wisdom in that. Well, thank you, Tyler, man, for being on the show. It's going to be a great episode and we're going to connect soon, man. I'm going to hit you up, man. I'm, I'll hit you up on Facebook, find you on Instagram, and then I'll connect with you when we get down to Destin. Awesome, brother. I really appreciate it, Terrence. Thank you so much. Congrats on everything you're doing, man. See you soon, bro. For sure, bro. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Please subscribe on whichever platform you are listening and consider leaving a five-star review as that will help us gain traction and continue to bring you knowledge in the real estate industry. For more content, head over to terrencemurphy.com.